0: We're still working out our cues here in the live in-person worship. It is uh, great to be with you. Uh, welcome again, everybody at home staying warm and cozy, we hope, and everybody here who braved the elements to get here. Uh, we're glad to be together in this strange and wonderful way. Um, before we begin today, a little item of happy news. Uh, we can all use happy news, right? Um, I just found out from my wife, Rupali, that in the best of Boulder, Grace Commons Church is now the best place to worship. So so yeah, give yourselves a hand. We're thankful for that, and uh, we'll we'll, uh, we'll take it because we don't always get it. So for whatever that means, we're we're grateful. Uh, Hey, today is the second message in our new sermon series entitled, Towards a Commons Politics. And in this series, we are boldly breaking the rules of etiquette. We're not only talking about religion, we're talking about politics together. And uh, it's not easy, but it is important. And we have nine days to go until the big election. Have you voted? Uh, Good, good, I'm glad to hear it. And if you haven't, please do that soon, thank you. Last week, we focused on our common challenge. We are called to be a holy community engaged in Jesus' mission in the world. And we are to be in the world, but not of the world. And that's the challenge. Uh, We want to integrate all our lives, including our politics, in Jesus. And to strive to have his mind as we think about these things. Well, this week we focus on our common identity. To wonder about identity is to ask, who are we? at our core. Who or what ought to define us? Is our identity big enough? Is it durable enough? In first-century Palestine, it's recorded that many Jewish men would have prayed a prayer daily that went like this, thank you, O Lord, that I am a Jew and not a Gentile. Thank you, O Lord, that I am a free man and not a slave. Thank you, O Lord, that I am a man and not a woman. I kid you not, that was an actual prayer. And before he was our Apostle Paul, Rabbi Saul would have preached, or rather prayed, a prayer like that. But when he met Jesus Christ, everything changed. His identity changed. And the way he viewed human beings changed. And he wrote about it in a little letter called the Letter to the Ephesians, And we're going to look at it. We're going to start in chapter 2 at verse 11, but let me tell you what's been going on. In chapter 2, Paul basically tells us that the ground is level at the foot of the cross, meaning that no human being can stand above another because we're all under the power of sin. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, as Paul says elsewhere. But he says we are dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once lived according to the powers of the world. But in Jesus Christ, God has saved us by His grace. We can't save ourselves. God has saved us. And now we are alive, made new in Jesus. And that changes everything. It changes who we are at our core. And it changes the way we relate to one another. We pick it up at chapter 2, verse 11. Let's look at it. Paul writes, Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles, non-Jews, by birth, and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves a circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. This is the Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for this Word written by the Apostle so long ago, and we pray now that Your Holy Spirit would lead us to consider what it means for us today. For Jesus' sake, amen. In the first century... Most Jews saw the whole world, all human beings, divided into two camps, Jew and Gentile, us and them, God's people and the goyim, the rest of the dirty world. To give us a vivid sense of this division, John Stott in his commentary on Ephesians quotes William Barclay and he writes this, the Jew had an immense contempt for the Gentile. The Gentiles said the Jews were created by God to be a fuel for the fires of hell. God, they said, loves only Israel of all the nations that he had made. Until Christ came, the Gentiles were an object of contempt to the Jews. The barrier between them was absolute. If a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl or if a Jewish girl married a Gentile boy, the funeral of that Jewish boy or girl was carried out. Such contact with a Gentile was the equivalent of death. Herod's temple in the first century in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus reflected these realities. You can see it there. The temple was built with a series of concentric walls, all of them aimed at separation. The inmost wall separated a holy God from the rest of humankind. The next wall separated laymen from uh, priests, and then there was a wall separating the men from the women, and finally a seven-foot stone barricade that separated all Jews from all Gentiles. And on this outer wall, there was a sign posted, and this sign has been discovered uh, by archaeologists, and you can go see it now in Istanbul, Turkey, and here's what it read. No foreigner, no Gentile, in other words, may enter within the barrier and enclosure around the temple. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. In other words, trespassers will not just be prosecuted, they will be executed. For first century Jews especially men, the whole world was seen with walls and labels And these sorted the earth's inhabitants into religion and ethnicity and gender and geography. Some were in, God's chosen people, and the rest were out, the goyim, the Gentiles. And the temple was the ultimate symbol. You know, it's our human nature to use walls to divide the world into us and them. We do this all the time. Walls and labels do this. There are those who look like us and those who don't. There are those who worship the way we do, and those who don't. There are those who hold a certain passport, and those who don't. Those who watch a certain news channel, and those who don't. Those who vote like we do, and those who don't. Friends, this is tribalism. It's deeply rooted, and it's dangerously divisive. It's symbolized by walls, walls on our property, walls around our churches, walls at our borders, walls in our hearts. This deep distrust, this division, this disharmony afflicts our human race. And the Bible tells us that this division is a result of sin, of our willful disobedience against God, and it has broken apart our relationship with God and all uh, the rest of us. How then does God address sin? God does it through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus breaks down our walls. Jesus heals our division. Jesus reunites our broken humanity. As the diverse peoples of this world put their trust in Jesus Christ, Jesus' church reflects their diverse beauty. The body of Christ is composed of every nation, tribe, and tongue. Now, all human beings who bend the knee to King Jesus are his royal family, regardless of the labels that they've used in the past. Jew, Gentile, it doesn't matter anymore. All human beings come together as one as they trust in Jesus Christ. And this applies not just to religion, it can apply to politics. Very often, political powers use labels to co-opt and divide God's people. One of the most chilling examples, of course, was Nazi Germany, and I know some about this through my family. My dad was born in Berlin in 1934. He remembers as a child seeing the huge Nazi rallies and parades. He even saw Hitler. My grandparents were committed Christians, But they chose to worship privately apart from the Lutheran church. To them, too many Lutherans at that time had become Deutsche Christen, the nationalist German church that aligned itself with Hitler and the Nazi agenda. And this was the flag of the Deutsche Christen. The Nazis were all about walls and labels, all about defining identities and determining destinies. They even prescribe certain accepted names for German children. My dad's name is Sigmar. That's my middle name, and it means great victory. Back in the mid-1980s, the year I lived in London, I went over to Germany to see my grandmother and my uncle, and my grandmother showed me uh, the birth documents from my dad and my uncle, and she showed me the little booklet that accompanied them with the accepted German names in them. The booklet was filled with Nazi propaganda, and my grandmother had taken an ink pen and scratched it all out, a defiant act of her Christian faith. Nazi politics sought to co-opt Christian identities, and in some cases they succeeded, but in my family, thank God, they did not. Tragically, the Deutsche Christen gave up their expansive identity in Jesus for the narrow parody of the Nazi party. Now, let's be clear. There were German Christians, German-speaking Christians who did protest, some of them timidly and quietly, others more boldly. We think of the great Swiss theologian Karl Barth and his bold Barman declaration that has made its way into our Presbyterian Church book of confessions there it is made clear that our allegiance is first and foremost to Jesus Christ and not to a political party and not to some ruler or leader. We think not only of Bart, we think of his colleague Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the younger German theologian and pastor, and his underground seminary, and how he resisted Hitler and was killed for it at the end of the war. But sadly, in large numbers, the German Christian church was deeply divided, and its witness was corrupted. We learn from church history that only Jesus and only the kingdom of God can define the church and its people. No political party should ever be allowed to do this. No party has a monopoly on the truth of Jesus Christ or the truth of our lives. The church must beware of bonding too closely with any political party. Almost always, such bonding becomes bondage. Now, why is this so important? Because Christ's church in our country is in danger of being divided and co-opted by politics. We're being conformed to smaller stories. We're being shrunken to smaller identities. We're being divided in our homes and in our sanctuaries and across this country, we the people of God. We're allowing ourselves to be pitted against each other. We're muttering and sometimes shouting at each other things like those heretic progressive Christians, those radical Marxists, or those nationalist evangelicals, those fascists. It's tragic. Our division as the body of Christ is pathetic and dangerous, and deadly. As Christian theologian Lee Camp put it in his book, Scandalous Witness, Christian partisanship is like a fist fight on the Titanic. Jesus Christ shed his blood and died to make us one. His physical body was broken to make his spiritual body whole. How dare we descend into name-calling in the church? This family feud is disgraceful. We are all equally children of the King. We are all equally citizens of the kingdom, progressives and evangelicals, mainline Christians and independent Bible church folk, Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, Protestant, Reformed, Lutheran, Methodist, Congregationalist, Baptist, Charismatic, Pentecostal, all of us are one in Jesus Christ. It is our birthright as Christians to live into this breathtaking oneness. Chuck Colson, years ago in his memoir, Life Sentence, told the moving story of a dinner gathering that included Harold Hughes, a former senator, Tommy Tarrant, a white racist, Eldridge Cleaver, a militant black activist, and Colson himself, a former White House official. And Chuck Colson wrote this, What a strange collection of people. The one-time Nixon loyalist, a recovered alcoholic and liberal Democratic senator from Iowa, a member of the Black Panther Party and an avowed Marxist revolutionary out on bail, and an ex-KKK terrorist doing 35 years in prison. Here were men who represented opposite poles, culturally, politically, socially. It would be unthinkable in the world's eyes that they could come together for any purpose. Yet on this night, they prayed together, wept together, and embraced, joined by the power of the Holy Spirit in a fraternity that transcends all others. That's a great story. Trouble is, that story is decades old now. Where's that story being told today? So how does all of this get worked out in our life together in the church? How can we embrace our common identity in Christ? The simple answer is through word and sacrament. We need the word that reminds us of our theology, of what God has done for us in Christ. That is Ephesians 2, which we read together earlier. But we also need the word which reminds us of our ethics. That is what we are to do in response to what God has done for us. We need a word like Ephesians 4. Let's take a look at 1 through 6. These are our marching orders as the people of God. There Paul writes, As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Christ's new community, the church, must live. Keep that up on the screens because we're going to unpack it very briefly. How does this all work out practically? Well, let's just think about that first phrase, live a life worthy of the calling with which you have been called. That's the high calling. That's our ultimate identity, our core identity, that we are a new people, That we are the redeemed community, made new in Jesus Christ, where all our divisions have been broken down. That is our life worthy of the calling with which we've been called. We need to keep that in mind. And then when we interact with one another in the church, we need to be completely humble and gentle. How hard this is. What a struggle it is for us sometimes. But this is our discipleship, and we need God's help to do it then we're called to be patient, bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another It literally means putting up with one another. That's the challenge. And finally, make every effort, Paul says, to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. We've got to work at it. And it isn't easy. I don't pretend to say that. No, it's hard. We need the Lord's help. And so we need the Word. We also need the sacraments. We have two sacraments, as you're aware, baptism and the Lord's Supper. If we have been baptized, we've been baptized into Christ, into His death and resurrection. This is our identity. This is who we are, every one of us. And this identity stands high above all other earthly identities, all other things that define us. I like, again, how Lee Camp put it in Scandalous Witnesses. He said this, baptism is the Christian's Pledge of Allegiance. Hear that again. Baptism is the Christian's Pledge of Allegiance. Wow! Do you believe that? That's our greatest pledge. That's our greatest identity. We are all united in one baptism. And we, in Holy Communion, all eat of one loaf. We drink of one cup. And Christ's physical body was split apart so that his spiritual body could be reunited. Remember that communion is not only communion with the Lord Jesus, but it's communion with each other and with all other Christians. Progressive, conservative, black, white, none of that matters. We are all one in Jesus. I don't know about you, but I'm hearing some disturbing whispers in the media right now. Maybe you've heard these as well. I'm hearing whispers of the possibility in our country of civil war. Yes, civil war in our country again. Some fear that our country is so divided in this election season that we could be pushed over the edge. God, help us. And what a tragedy it would be if the church, Jesus' church in America, was no different If we allowed our nation's deep divisions to make us build up walls again, and we're already starting to do it. It's happened before. In the last civil war, the divisions ran right through the churches, and the scars are still with us. Shame on us if we do this again. God, help us not to divide the body of Jesus Christ. We are much too close to doing this already. God help us. We must pray and we must be vigilant. May we say, as the apostle wrote in his letter to the Galatians, where he said this, he said, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, we acknowledge our brokenness and fallenness. We acknowledge how far short we fall of this great truth we've been studying together today. And we pray that you would apply to our hearts and lives whatever it is we must hear today and help us live it out. Help us to pray and help us to act in such a way that we glorify you in this tough and difficult season before us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.